Welcome back to my podcast, Memoirs of a Nigerian in Christ. This is episode 6. Today we'll be reading from chapter 3, Legally Blind. Stay tuned and enjoy. Before relationships and marriage became the focal point of my life, the only other desire that was driving my decisions was my determination to go to law school and become an attorney. Law school was a turning point, but I did not realize that it had also traumatized me until I started unpacking my experiences with a licensed therapist. Since the age of three, the only career path that I found remotely appealing was lawyer. I said as much when anyone asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. I do not know if anyone ever told me what a lawyer did, but I had latched on to the idea and never deviated from the plan. When I relocated to the United States for middle school, everything I did from sixth grade onward was geared towards becoming a lawyer. I took newspaper and yearbook as electives because printed publications seemed like something a lawyer should know. In high school, my goal was to finish well so I could get into an amazing pre-law program for college. In college, I joined the pre-law society because it seemed like the most obvious track to get to law school. The summer before my senior year in college, I started studying for the LSAT, though it was still four months away. I could not afford the thousands of dollars for the best prep courses, but I bought the best review book I could afford and made my schedule dedicating three to four hours each day to my preparation. School came easy for me. I was promoted early twice in elementary school and finished high school at 16. It would have been 15, but my mom refused to allow me to be promoted a third time. I was confident that the same natural intelligence, love of learning and hard work would give me my desired results on the LSAT. I was going to work my behind off to achieve the life I had dreamt about for almost two decades. After four months and what felt like hundreds of hours of study, the LSAT came and went. The logic section was a beast. I was a nervous test taker and standardized tests were not my thing, but I knew I had done my best and given everything I had to give on the test. I was confident that my results would reflect my efforts. When my scores arrived, I had scored in the lowest 30th percentile. I was shocked and embarrassed and confused. Never in my life did my academic effort fail to reflect in my results. As a college freshman, I would end a night of partying by staying up till daybreak to study and walk into my eight o'clock class still slightly intoxicated but cognizant enough to take notes and study for the next class. I did the most partying of my life as a college freshman, but my work ethic was unquestionable. I studied my behind off, and I ended the semester with a 3.8 GPA. I expected my efforts towards law school to reflect what I attributed to my natural brilliance and my ability to outstudy anyone when they did not. My confidence was irrevocably shaken. 
When people asked me about my LSAT scores, I changed the subject. I was too embarrassed to tell anyone how poorly I did. I was also slightly panicked at the thought of having to pay for such an expensive education. A low LSAT score put me out of the realm of academic scholarships. My parents were in tough financial straits. The last two years of my college education had been solely funded by student loans when my academic grants disappeared with shrinking funding and ballooning tuition costs. I crossed myself off the list for top tier schools by not applying. I had zero chances of being admitted and would not waste my limited financial resources on application fees. My goal was the amazing and affordable legal education provided by the North Carolina Central University School of Law, a local HBCU and legal powerhouse that produced some of our state's best and brightest attorneys, judges, Supreme Court justices, and advocates for justice on both sides of the bench. NCCU School of Law was on my short list of law schools to attend. Duke and Wake Forest were tied for number one. NCCU gave me the shot I needed to begin my legal career. But my journey to secure my seat in the class of 2007 was rocky from the beginning. By sheer ignorance, I forgot to change my address in time before graduation and my acceptance letter to law school was locked away on campus unretrieved while I moved back home. When I called to check on the status of my application, the Dean of Admissions informed me that my seat had been given away because of my lack of response. I was devastated. I wrote one letter of explanation after the other. I called the school almost daily, and by some miracle, I was given a second chance to send my notice of intent to enroll. God was looking out for me. Once I finally made it to law school, my orientation professor told me and my fellow classmates that one third of our class would not graduate or even make it past the first year. Our school graded on a C curve. The highest grade in the class would set the curve and everyone that did not measure up or God forbid came in at the bottom end, regardless of effort would fail the course and possibly the entire program. Again, I did the best studying I could. I spoke with my professors after class. I did practice essays at home. I studied in four to five hour stretches. I took breaks in between. Even with all of that effort, I came in at a strong C average for my first year. I also navigated my dad's job loss, paid my parents mortgage with my refund check, and lift off my student loans. My financial situation was tough to say the least, but I did what I could with what I had. The second year was even harder and my grades reflected the rigor of the program, not necessarily the dozens of hours I was spending in the books every week. I entered my last year of law school at a solid C minus average. When fellow students were interviewing for associate positions for the summer and post-graduation, I was mourning my lack of academic success. I went from being an A student in undergrad to praying, praying to graduate law school with a C.
my faith in my abilities was severely shaken. And for the first time in my life, I stopped trying at new things for fear of humiliating failure. There, in the classrooms of Section 101 at North Carolina Central University School of Law, my paralyzing fear of failure was born. I made my worst grades in my last semester of law school, and not because I did not study or understand the material. Regardless of the reason, not excelling at law school made me feel like a fraud. I never discussed my grades with other students, and especially not with my family. I was too ashamed. I was not as smart as I had previously thought. And the worst thing that could happen was for anyone to find out that I was an imposter. I was not brilliant or proficient or even average. I was dumb. The LSAT and law school had proven it so. And barely holding my own among my peers. I graduated without honors and without prospects and could not shake the feeling that I was failing at life. When it came time to study for the bar, I was a bundle of nerves, but I attacked the subject matters with rigor. Thanks largely to my roommate in our law school study group, Alicia, Vicky, Jessica, Renata, Shernice, and Winnie. I conquered the bar exam on the first try. My faith in my abilities was temporarily restored. My results on the bar exam gave me something new to add to my resume and I began job searching for the first time in my adult life. After six months of solid effort and six weeks of volunteering with our local legal aid in hopes of turning my time with them into a paid internship or staff attorney position, I came up empty-handed. Being unemployed despite my best effort brought back my fear of failure with renewed force. Being unemployed was confirmation of my worst fears about myself. I was not good enough for the career and life I wanted. As my classmates and friends all went on to become public defenders, assistant district attorneys, associates at prominent law firms, and clerks for the best judges and justices in the country, I languished in self-pity. Everyone was passing me by, and there was nothing I could do about it. I chased one lead after the other, trying desperately to find a job. I interviewed with a friend of my pastor who ended up ghosting me. She did not return my calls or emails and when I showed up at her office to set a follow-up appointment for us to meet, she refused to see me. I pursued a lead with a local college about teaching some of their pre-law classes. The same Nigerian dean who had encouraged me to apply never spoke to me again despite my dozens of attempts to follow up. Every door I knocked on was slammed in my face, and each rejection broke me down further than the last. By the time the next year rolled around, I was a shell of my former self. When I called one of my former professors, Professor Fred Williams, for advice, thank you also to Professor Donna Corbett and Professor Irvin Joyner, who counseled me during this time. Professor Williams advised me that I was licensed to practice law and fully capable of establishing my own practice. With his encouragement, I hung my shingle and opened the law office of Momi Williams. I had no money, no investors, and no idea how to run a business, but I needed to eat and I could not live with my parents for the rest of my life. 
if no one would hire me to do the work I had dreamt of doing since I was three years old, then I had to make my own opportunities. I found free office space thanks to one of my father's friends, Dr. A. Dr. A is brilliant, well-connected, and too kind for words. He used his contacts to connect me with one of his former mentees who had office space for rent. Dr. A's mentee, we'll call him Clint, had a law firm in High Point, and he and his law partner had graciously offered me an unpaid summer internship while I was home. I had hoped to parlay that internship into a paid position as well, but they could not afford it. I'm not sure I would have been a good fit anyway. When we had an office party and one of my bosses brought his infant son, the baby stared at me in a manner that I found curious, even for babies who were notorious for giving zero cares about social etiquettes. His dad laughed and explained that I was the first black person their son was seen in his seven months of life, meaning there were so few people of color in their lives that my brown skin was jarring for their baby. I took no exception to the incident, but it has been lodged in my mind ever since. If Clint and Rob had no black friends, I doubted they were willing to pay me and bring me into their long-established practice. Slightly comforted by the presence of more experienced attorneys in the building, I began my foray into business ownership and legal practice. I think I made a total of mm, $50 my first few months of business. I had the gnawing fear that I did not know what I was doing, and the fear kept me from taking on any cases more complex than simple traffic matters. I had high hopes of practicing law that would impact the lives of those in my community, especially fellow immigrants, but fear kept insisting that I did not know enough to help anyone. So whenever the opportunity to take on more complex cases came about, I turned them down. The fear of failure that was born in law school graduated with me. I spent the next 10 years of my career allowing fear to dictate every career move I made. When a longtime mentor called me to partner with him on a multi-million dollar case, I considered it for a few weeks, even going as far as helping him draw up the initial complaint. But before long, I was paralyzed by the fear of my own incompetence. There were lives and livelihood at stake. So I backed out of the case, sent in my notice of withdrawal, and referred his case to one of the popular personal injury attorneys in our state. Fear kept me from applying for new career opportunities because in my own mind, having failed to secure a job after law school was proof positive that I was an undesirable candidate. I had every excuse in the book not to apply for anything that my loved ones suggested. My lack of follow-through was a major point of contention between my father and I for years. After bragging about me throughout my years in school, especially when I graduated college with honors and passed the bar on the first attempt, the stagnancy in my career was hard for him to accept. I knew he was disappointed, but confirmation did not come for five more years. When I got engaged and showed him my ring in 2012, he congratulated me 
and used the opportunity to verbally lament the last five years of my career. He encouraged me to find a good job before marriage because time was running out for me to build the career I wanted. He told me about other women who were aggressively pursuing their careers and were almost 40 before they'd settled down because their careers had been so buoyant. I cried after that conversation as well. My lack of career success was glaring to everyone around me and I was embarrassed by it. Over the 23 years leading to my graduation from law school, I had grown to cherish the acceptance and approval of my parents. Practicing law was a career path they approved and championed. Any child of Nigerian parents will tell you there are only three acceptable careers, doctor, lawyer, or engineer. Anything else made you the family disappointment. I wanted to be a lawyer almost as much as my parents desired for me to be one. In all of our eyes, I had picked the perfect profession, one that would lead me to financial mobility and personal gratification. That was the plan. Sitting at home year after year in a failing practice and not earning enough money to support myself was a big letdown to not just me, but the village who had been cheering me on since childhood. When my friends from law school went on to new positions and opportunities, I would wish that I was as qualified to do the things in my career that seemed to bring such personal fulfillment to everyone who graduated with me. I was languishing in private practice. I never intended to be a business owner while I was in law school, and being thrown into the waters was jarring. I knew law. I did not know how to run a profitable business. Before long, I began to resent the career that had chosen me since the age of three. Law school not only gave birth to my fear of failure, it also gifted me with a deep sense of inadequacy in my career and a paralyzing fear of rejection. I did not like talking about my career with others. Discussing it with my family always made me cry. I felt like I was letting everyone down. Talking to other lawyers only planted roots of comparison in my life. Everywhere I turned, lawyers were flourishing in the practice of law. One of my best friends had worked her way out of debt, bought a new car in our first year after graduation. My pride in her accomplishments only highlighted my disappointments in my failings. When she bought her first home two years later, while I was still living at home with my parents, I was more ashamed of my stagnancy than ever before. After graduation, I had this unspoken fear that I was not good enough for other lawyers, so I never exerted myself to make new lawyer friends. Letting other lawyers into my personal life carried too high a risk of rejection. I had nothing to offer. I was not smart or well-connected or remotely successful, so I did not bother to put myself out there in any significant capacity. My time in law school was marked by a heart that was motivated more by vain ambition than by Christ. As I studied and dreamt of my future career, I was also partying 
and entertaining meaningless relationships. If I had it to do all over again, law school would have been spent very differently. Instead of banking on the imaginary six-figure salary that my JD was going to give me upon graduation, I would have grown my passion for Christ and invested in my natural giftings of writing and storytelling. I served my own ambitions more than I centered Christ for those three years, and it led me further away from fulfillment and purpose than I ever thought possible. Everything I wanted to achieve was going to be done through law school and based on my own efforts, or so I thought. Of course I prayed and I attended church, but truth be told, my future career was my God. My professors told me that law school was a jealous girlfriend, meaning our rigorous education did not leave room for romantic relationships to thrive. But no one bothered to tell me that law school also made a terrible God. I went through law school spiritually blind. I was a churchgoer, but my lifestyle was far removed from Christ. My priorities were A, studying, passing, graduating, and B, having a good time in relationships and on the weekends. Christ did not enter the equation, except for Sunday mornings when I attended church, then before law school finals, when we held hands for our prayer circle, and lastly, the few times I found myself in crisis. Law school was my first venture into an adult world. I was surrounded by people with more experience and with deeper viewpoints on the world. I had every opportunity to adapt and find a new way of looking at the world. And somehow, I had managed to go through the entirety of my legal education by drifting further and further away from my faith. My legal career was proving to be a disappointment. I had several crises as a solo practitioner, all spurred on by the lack of money. The first crisis was when Clint, the lawyer who had so graciously offered me free office space, asked me to pay $400 per month in rent for someone who had not yet earned $400 in her entire career. I was looking at closing up shop and running my business out of the nearest Starbucks, a public library. A few months later, he informed me that our building, which was owned by his law firm, was being foreclosed, and I eventually left the only office I had known. The second such crisis was when I was on the court-appointed list for indigent clients and had been for over a year. But the state of North Carolina was not paying our fees. They ran out of funding. I was scheduled to be in court with a client in High Point, but did not have enough money for gas to make the 23-mile trip from Greensboro. I pulled over at the closest gas station with $5 left in all of my accounts, personal, business, savings, and checking. And I cried my heart out. This was not the, this was not the vision God has shown me regarding my career. I was the very definition of starving, and I was sick of living off pennies while my, quote, business cost me more 
than having no job at all. My third crisis was when I could no longer afford the $500 a pop for continuing legal education or CLE classes. These were needed to keep my license to practice law. I had to take 12 hours each year and could only afford one local CLE that had been offered that year. I was almost seven hours short when the deadline came and passed. I had no money to my name and could not afford any more courses. The bar issued an order to show cause in my case and I panicked. Being poor was about to cost me my license to practice law. Thankfully, my classmates and friends, Alicia and Vicky, pointed me to free resources for CLE courses, and my fiance, now husband, gave me the $500 I needed to cover the rest of the missing hours. The last such crisis was when my parents' home, where I had been living with them, went into foreclosure and I became homeless. I did not have anything to my name to help my family out of our financial crisis. Even though my peers were buying and investing in homes all around the state, it was a devastating blow. When I was finally ready to forage into immigration law four years into my practice, I was met with the uncomfortable truth that those who needed my service the most could not afford or were unwilling to pay for it. Instead of charging my rates unapologetically, I would accept pennies for my time while I poured countless hours over complicated immigration matters. Being an ethical lawyer meant that I was not willing to take on a case unless I knew it like the back of my hand. But the clients I invested the most hours into usually paid me the least for my services. I never argued because I figured that times were tough for everybody. Being a professional was costing me thousands in business. I was good at lawyering and terrible at running a profitable practice. Each year of private practice after the first one was filled with new promises to myself that I was somehow earn a livable income from my business. I was not built for private practice. The cyclical nature of living feast to famine, more like famine to famine for me, was thoroughly demoralizing. I had taken on a new area of law, only for it to once again fail in providing me with the career I had dreamed up. The trauma of failure that followed me from law school was relived with every year of private practice. Practicing immigration law made me popular within my own community. People tapped me for my expertise on a constant basis. So much so that I began dreading answering phone calls from numbers I did not know. The inquiring minds who called me nonstop did not translate into paying clients and I was as close to burnout as I had ever been. As everyone from church members to childhood friends wanted free consultations but would not sign a retainer. People wanted me to give them a step-by-step -step guide for representing themselves. And I began sending all my calls after work to voicemail 
just to get a semblance of work-life balance. I dreaded my work more than I enjoyed it because it took so much from me, yet gave me so little in terms of financial mobility. I was part of the working poor for most of my time in practice. I could not afford health insurance or benefits. I had no 401k plans or savings, and I spent everything that came through my hands and borrowed the rest. Thank God for my parents, or I would have starved. Law school changed me in a remarkable way. The LSAT and law school itself both taught me that failure was not only an option, but it was the most likely result of trying something new. Up until the start of my legal career, I was relatively fearless. After failing in such remarkable ways, I saw new opportunities as disappointments waiting to happen. I stopped trying to accomplish more than I had before. Fear had won. Even after I came to Christ, my career remained stagnant. It would take more than prayer to change the deeply ingrained fear I had about public failure. I needed a miracle. That miracle ended up being a person. His name is KG. My husband KG was the one who finally pushed me out of private practice. When we got married, I was still working for myself, but my income was not helping us. I was taking money out of our checking account to travel to court for clients who would not pay me. I was spending money on office supplies and sitting in an office that often earned me zero dollars in a day. I could not afford office staff and had it not been for a friend who volunteered herself as my office assistant for years, I would not have been able to keep my office open as long as I did. I bless God for the gift of supernatural provision. It was a miracle that Clint allowed me to use his office building for so long, rent-free. It was a bigger miracle that someone was willing to help me keep my practice afloat, even though I could not afford to pay her. She went as far as babysitting my kids for me while I ran from one courthouse to the next on busy days. After our third year of marriage, my husband had ample opportunity to see how I was doing in business. He flat out told me to close the practice. I, on the other hand, was petrified to do what made the most financial sense. Close my practice and do what? Admit to everyone that I was not fit to practice law? Let people see firsthand that I was an undesirable candidate and could not even secure the most basic of attorney jobs. Absolutely not. Closing my practice would mean admitting to the world that I was indeed a failure in my chosen career. But my husband did not relent. He pushed, nudged, and encouraged me to get back into the workforce. It did not have to be a high-paying job. It just needed to be something that was reasonable and paid me for my time. Even an extra $500 a month would have been a relief for our overstretched finances. I was too petrified of the rejection that waited for me if I was to jump back into the job searching process. 
but thanks largely to my husband's unwavering faith in my abilities. I gave it a shot. In June of 2017, I hired one of my sisters, Aurora of Pure Fine Designs, to revamp my resume and began the process of looking for a job, any job that would have me. After almost one year of solid effort and a constant quieting of the voices that told me I could not succeed, I found the job that helped to heal my sense of career failure, a job I would never have applied for but for my husband's encouragement. My marriage ended up healing me in more ways than I could have previously anticipated. As I have grown away from private practice and leaned more into my calling as a writer and professional truth teller, the temptation to keep my title as an attorney is still palpable. Being an attorney and a legal professional gave me clout. It made people recognize me and it showed me some semblance of respect. I have depended on that title for so long that it feels as much a part of me as my name. To retire from the practice of law or simply give it up would be like learning to function without one of my limbs or at the very least one of my fingers. The more I grew in my new role at work and in my writing and speaking pursuits, the more I recognize that being an attorney has very little to do with what I am capable of on a human level. Yet and still, letting the title simply fall away seems like a big risk. What if this new life as a writer doesn't work out? Would I not look foolish for incurring all this school debt only to give up the very career I went into debt to pursue? What would my family think? I often think about my dad and how the first thing he tells anyone about his only daughter is the fact that I am a licensed attorney. Sometimes the pride in his face is the only thing that keeps me tethered to this law license. It certainly is not the money. I also wonder if I am being selfish in my desire to give up the practice of law. I became an attorney to help people, especially those in my community. Where would they go when they need an attorney but could not afford to pay one? Who would be willing to take their case and allow them to pay as they are able, except me and my bleeding heart? Would they even take the step of engaging an attorney when they know none of the others in our area speak our language or understand their accent? Would they be intimidated out of seeking legal help simply because they did not want the hassle of being dehumanized by attorneys and staff? Those who lack the professional courtesy to navigate clients who speak with anything but an American accent. I have found myself communicating with clients in Yoruba simply because it was the language that made them most comfortable and forcing them to speak in English, which they do understand and can speak, did not bode well for gaining their confidence. Just because the actual practice of law had lost its luster for me did not mean that my heart for my community had changed. I had to begin to open my eyes to the various ways I could still serve my community even if I no longer practice law. 
in re-examining my passions and my natural gifts. I recognize that I can use my gifts and serve my community while doing so. That does not necessarily require me to practice law. I may still ultimately decide to retain my law license and my title as an attorney, but my goal is to no longer be defined by those things. For far too long, I have assumed that the only way I can impact the world was in the courtroom. I am finally beginning to see that the possibilities are endless. I will not lie and say that it's easy to picture myself apart from my title as an attorney. For almost three decades, there was no doubt in my mind that this would be my profession until I was ready to retire. It is only within the last three years that the possibility of doing life outside of law began to take shape. It is still hard to accept that my family and loved ones may only ever see me as a person of authority and influence if this title is attached to my name. And they may decide that I have nothing of substance to offer apart from my success in graduating law school and passing the bar. But I'm learning to be okay with that. I know too many people who are miserably living the life that their families expected of them. I know them because I was them. Given a choice between law school and choosing another passion that does not end me in six figures worth of debt, I would have chosen another path. I was so blinded by the promise of a secure future and a respected profession that I did not answer the deeper questions that plagued me. Could I see myself doing this work for the rest of my life? Is this truly my calling in life? Or is this an idea that I latched onto because it made sense and won my parents' approval? When I examined those questions closely, and line them up with my natural inclinations as a child. All signs did not point to becoming a lawyer. All signs pointed to me becoming a writer and a storyteller. But I was too afraid of choosing a creative path because none had ever been forged by any Nigerians before me. I did not know of any Nigerian writers who made a living simply by doing that work. At least none whose lives I could study up close. All the Nigerian writers I knew of were legends and too far out of my reach for me to, to learn directly from their lives. Additionally, I spent too many years minimizing my gifts. Writing and storytelling came easy to me, so I did not value them properly. I thought it was something that anyone could do if they simply wanted to. It never occurred to me that this was an ability given by God, not a life skill that was so generally available that it was common. Being a lawyer made sense in the grand scheme of things. As a Nigerian, it was a respected profession. As a believer, it was an avenue where I could use my faith, live out my faith, and impact the world. As a woman, I will be in good company with other women who were still blazing trails and making history in this profession. As a wife, I had plenty of examples of women who thrived in this profession and still enjoyed a wonderful married life. As a mother, I knew many women 
who built a legacy for their children using their law degree and their success in the courtroom. As a daughter, it was my opportunity to make my parents proud and provide for them in their later years. As an aspiring difference maker, it was a no-brainer. Lawyers were at the forefront of every great change in any society. The people who changed the law and changed the culture were all represented by great attorneys and were lawyers themselves, everyone from presidents to CEOs. Becoming a lawyer was my own great shot at impacting my generation in a way that leaves a lasting impression on everyone who knows me. So I wanted to become a lawyer, not just to hold the title and to practice law in courtrooms all over North Carolina and the United States. I wanted to become a lawyer because practicing law seemed like it would give me an inside track to success, wealth, professional satisfaction, and legacy building. It was only after 15 years pursuing a legal education 12 years after completing that education and 11 years of practicing law that I realized that I did not need a law degree or a law license to fulfill my God-given purpose or to live a full, thriving, successful life in Christ. That has been Chapter 3 of Memoirs of a Nigerian in Christ. Join me next week for Chapter 4. Thanks for listening. Take care.